So we're going to be in Psalm 22 this morning. We're only going to be reading the first 21 verses. There's really, out of the six stanzas or six sections um, in this particular section of the psalm, we're only going to hone in on um, just a few of them this morning, given the time that we have. Um, if we have time at some point later on, we may come back to the second half of this particular psalm at another point. But um, we're going to dive into this particular passage in just a second. But I want to share with you, and, and I don't endorse this movie. I've not seen it. I don't know anything about it. I've, I've neither, can, can, can neither confirm nor deny anything. But in 2018, there was a movie called The Darkest Hour that came out. It was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. This movie um, takes the viewer through 20 days in May 1940. After the Germans started their offensive in Europe, started to roll through countries and take over and begin their desire, their, their attempt for world domination. Neville Chamberlain has to exit as Prime Minister of England and Winston Churchill takes over and the story leads to the heroic events of the rescue of the troops at Dunkirk. And the movie talks about the fact that those were the darkest hours for the country of, of England, for the UK, for Winston Churchill. And no doubt those were dark hours. We can look back at the Second World War, some of the wars that were fought, and there were definitely dark hours during those wars for the people that fought. But I'm going to argue that the darkest hours were the hours that we're going to be talking about through this psalm. The hours when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. We're going to talk about the suffering shepherd. Psalm 22 talks about the suffering shepherd. Then we have Psalm 23 that talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And we sometimes say that that is the good shepherd psalm. And then there are some that would say that Psalm 24 really talks about the great shepherd and how God is the great shepherd. I appreciate what James Boyce says. James Boyce says that this, of this psalm, that it is the best description in all the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Now, if you think about that and you're familiar with Scripture, you might find that kind of interesting that he says that, because we have four Gospels that clearly lay out the historical account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet Boyce believes that this psalm is actually the best description of it in all of Scripture. I trust that if we might not come away from it saying it's the best description, we at least would appreciate the gravity of what's being communicated in Psalm 22. We need to understand something. Scholars love to try to put psalms in historical context. We've talked about that before. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, in Psalm 3, that was connected to an event in David's life. Um, they would love for this particular event to be connected to something in David's life because David writes this psalm. But the reality of it is, is that what David describes going on here has nothing to do with his life at all. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is literally talking about what Jesus is going to experience on the cross of Calvary. There is nothing that ever happened in David's life that even comes close to what he describes here. 
In fact, there are clear descriptions in this passage of crucifixion. And in order to understand the gravity of this, we need to understand that historians would say that at the earliest, crucifixion may have been used by the Persians, but that was some four to 500 years after David lived. So when David writes this psalm, crucifixion hasn't even been thought of yet. It certainly hasn't been practiced by any nation. At the earliest, it would be four to 500 years after David's life, the crucifixion might have even been used. But we know that the, the, the regime that used it to its best ability, its most efficient, the most brutal, would be the Roman Empire, which actually started using it about a thousand years after David lived. And yet David, in this psalm, clearly and descriptively talks about or shares what crucifixion is like as he prophesies about the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to experience. As we study the events or look at the events around Christ's death on the cross of Calvary, Bible scholars tell us that there's about 21 separate prophecies that Jesus fulfills in the hours around his crucifixion. 21 separate prophecies. And Psalm 23 is a prophetic psalm that is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Probably helps for us to be reminded a little bit of maybe the events around Jesus' crucifixion. And so I'm just going to hit the bullet points. We're not going to actually get into the Gospels for sake of time this morning. But most of us, if not all of us in this room, are aware of this. First, you have just before the betrayal in the garden, you have... Jesus with his disciples in Bethany, with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they're eating the, the Passover meal, and in that Passover meal, Luke records for us that Jesus actually institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples in that last Passover meal that he enjoys with them. He sits down with them, and he says, look, I've, I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you, and, and then he proceeds to tell them the significance of the bread that they're taking. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then Jesus proceeds to take the cup. It would have been the cup of redemption in the Passover meal. And he uses that cup and he says, you want to know what redemption really is? It's the shedding of my blood to redeem people from their sins. And he lays out for them the significance of what it is that they're taking part in just before he goes off with his disciples into the garden to pray. And he says, hey, why don't you guys hang out here and pray, and then I'm going to go on further, and I'm going to pray. And the Gospels tells, uh, tell us that Jesus prays with such intensity that he sweats drops of blood. He, Jesus knows the agony that he's going to experience. Not just the physical agony, but the agony of being separated from the Father. He knows that he's going to experience something that is just brutal. And yet Jesus comes back and says, not my will, but yours be done. And then Judas comes along, and he betrays Jesus. He brings a, a, a mob, and they come in to arrest Jesus, and Jesus allows that arrest. As Jesus gets carted off to the high priest, we discover Peter's denial. The same guy that just earlier said, hey, Jesus, whatever, whatever it takes, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to die for you. I'm, I'm going with you to the very end. 
And then when Jesus gets carted off to be put on trial and Peter's presented with the opportunity to stand up for Jesus and stand up with Jesus and he says, I don't know who that guy is. Jesus is mocked and beaten by the Jews. He's then taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They put him on trial. They bring in false witnesses. Yeah, I heard Jesus say this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus definitely blasphemed. And so they find him guilty of blasphemy, which is guilty of death, but they can't execute Jesus. They don't have the power to do that. That's been taken away from them by the Romans. And so they take Jesus off and put him in front of Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate interviews him, and he finds no fault with Jesus. He doesn't want to have to deal with Jesus at all on this. And so Herod requests a meeting with Jesus, so Pilate's more than willing to send him off to Herod. Oh, yeah, you listen to him. You take care of this problem. Of course, Herod doesn't get anything that he wants out of Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate's still eager to try to wash his hands of the whole situation. Gives him the option. Hey, would you rather have Jesus or Barabbas, this rebel that's murdered people and stirred up trouble? And the Jews say, we want Barabbas. You crucify Jesus. So Pilate washes his hands of the situation Jesus taken off, he's scourged, brutally whipped. There's a historian named Eusebius that describes that in such graphic detail that we wouldn't even really want to imagine what it is that Jesus went through just in the scourging alone. Scripture tells us that they put a crown of thorns on his head. They hit that crown of thorns into his skull with a stick. They mocked him. They spit on him. And Jesus is sent out to the cross. He's crucified between two criminals. That's bad enough in and of itself. But then as we think about what Christ went through to provide salvation from sin for us, we've got people like Dr. Bart Ehrman who try to claim that Jesus went to the cross in agony and cried out to the Lord because God forsook him and abandoned him and he died forsaken and abandoned by God and was buried and that's where he stayed and tries to convince people that Jesus only cared about himself as he went through all of that and it amounted to nothing. And yet scripture makes it abundantly clear that as Jesus went to the cross and as Jesus was on the cross, Jesus actually thought of other people. He was more concerned about other people as he was going to the cross. In Luke chapter 23, we discover that Jesus was concerned about the women mourning as he was carrying his cross before them, going towards the the hill of Golgotha. In Luke 23, verse 28, it says this, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus says, I'm more concerned about you because there are days that are coming that when your enemies come and invade this city, they're going to level it, and you're going to wish that you guys were never born. 
Not only that, but Jesus was concerned about the soldiers who were the ones literally spiking his hands and his ankles into the cross. And as they're doing that, Jesus says in verse 34 of Luke chapter 23, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Then as he's hoisted on that cross in between two criminals, and he has a conversation between those two criminals, one mocking him, and deriding him, and the other one coming to grips with who Jesus actually is, and confessing his faith in Jesus, Jesus says this to the rebel on the cross, and he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Then as Jesus is hanging on the cross, John records for us that he's concerned about his earthly mother. 1926 and 27, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, and he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her home into his house. Jesus was immensely concerned about people around him as he went to the cross. And we have the psalm writer in Psalm 22 give a description of, of what Jesus was going to endure on the cross. And it starts out with a very familiar statement that we hear Jesus cry out. And I would say that when those dark hours came, it tells us in the gospel that when noon arrived for three hours, their darkness covered the land and it was pitch dark. And at that moment, Jesus cries out the actual words that are recorded in this prophetic psalm for us. In Psalm 22. So let's read Psalm 22, the first 21 verses. And we see right off the bat this statement that Jesus actually says on the cross of Calvary. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day and you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, rescued them. They cried to you and, set, and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I'm poured out like water, and my bones are disjointed. My heart melts like wax. Excuse me, my heart like, is like wax. It's melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
I count all my bones. People look, at, look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life for the, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. The psalm writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out for us what Jesus endured on the cross of Calvary, thousands of years before Jesus experienced this. One commentator, it's not mine, I'm not going to claim it to be mine, breaks this section down into six stanzas. The first stanza being verses 1 and 2, it's the cry of abandonment. It's those verses that were, those words that we're very familiar with when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Verses 3 through 5 are a memory of the past. Verses 6 through 8 are the mockery of Christ. Verses 9 through 11 are, the memory of, uh, are a memory of the past. Part 2, you can say. Verses 12 through 18 are the physical sufferings. And then 19 through 21 are the turning point. I really want to hone in on the, the first, the third, and the fifth stands, stanzas, and then just kind of wrap up in the very last statement that is made in verse 21, and then I want to draw your attention to the very last statement that's made in the psalm. From noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness that covered the land. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As Jesus was thinking about other people going to the cross at this point, I really believe that Jesus now begins to reflect on the Psalms that he knew by heart that talked about what he was experiencing in that moment on the cross of Calvary. Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is almost a parallel psalm talking about what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. And Jesus cries out, thinking about what he's enduring, think about, thinking about what has been prophesied about what he endures, thinking about what he's experiencing in that moment as he takes the sin of his people on his body and in that moment, God the Son, having God the Father turn his back on him because of the sin that he's taken on himself. And that relationship, which he describes for us in John 17, where Jesus says, the Father's loved me from before the foundation of the world. It gives us an insight on the fact that the Father, the Son, through the Holy Spirit, have an intimate, perfect, close, loving fellowship and relationship for all eternity and then in that moment the father turns his back on the son because of the sin of mankind and Jesus cries out my God my God why have you abandoned me I don't presume to be able to explain how the first person of the Godhead can turn his back on the second person of the Godhead I don't think any Bible scholar can really explain how that works exactly. But what we know is this, that a holy God has to deal with sin. And in, 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 in Psalm 22, verse 3, the psalm writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in this prophetic psalm, 
says this about God, but you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. That as Jesus hung on that cross and took the sin of his people on his body and became sin for us, that God the Father could no no longer look at the Son because of that sin. That Jesus had to deal with the sin problem. He had to die for that sin, the shedding of blood, for the forgiveness of sins. That a holy God went to that, the lengths of sending his own son to die on the cross to provide salvation for us. Isaiah 53, another prophetic passage of scripture about the crucifixion of Jesus, says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pain. And we went, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. See, a holy God has to deal with the sin problem of mankind. And in dealing with that sin, Jesus paid the penalty that we owed. He died the death that we should have died so that we might have salvation from our sins. The third stanza talks about the mockery of Jesus Christ. He says, Prophetically, but I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer. They shake their heads. They, he relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Matthew 27, 29 tells us about that mockery. That they... With the Jews, when they blindfolded him and struck him and said, Hey, Jesus, why don't you prophesy about who took, who, who's hitting you? The people in Matthew 27, as they walked by, not just the religious leaders, but the general public, they walked by, and in that fulfillment of this prophecy, they shake their heads. They make fun of Jesus. Oh, he trusts in God. Wasn't God bring him down off the cross? It's important to ask ourselves the question, if we were there, would we have done any different? I don't believe for a second that we would have. We would have been there mocking God with all the rest. Because I think about my own life, how many times, even as a believer, in understanding what Jesus has done for me, live a life that really sometimes is a mockery to God. Because I don't really behave and act towards other people in a way that is conducive to really understanding and grasping and living out what Jesus has done for me. Of little patience for other people. And yet the Bible tells us how patient God is with us. 
Sometimes I'm not quick to forgive. And yet Jesus was willing to die on the cross for my forgiveness. Psalm writer laying out clearly for us in Psalm 22 what the Messiah was going to experience to secure salvation for our sin. You could argue that the psalm writer, though maybe the psalm writer is thinking about themselves in verses 9 through 11, think about the fact that the Son of God came as a vulnerable, helpless baby. And Jesus could have easily been reflecting at some point over the verses of 9 through 11. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my, at my mother's breast. Jesus, the Son of God, was completely helpless as a human being. He was tired like we were tired. He was hungry like we were hungry. He experienced temptation like we experience. But the Scripture says that he went through all of these things, yet without sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And verses 12 through 18 talk about Jesus' physical sufferings on the cross. The first few verses we may find kind of confusing. It says, many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. With the, uh, open, they open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. We might say, well, none of that happened when Jesus was on the cross. That is poetic language to describe those who were mocking Jesus, involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, involved in the beating of Jesus, the scourging of Jesus. C.I. Schofield in his reference Bible gives a, 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 an amazing description in his note on this particular passage, he says this, Psalm 22 is a graphic picture of the death by crucifixion. The bones of the hands and the arms and shoulders and pelvis out of joint. Verse 14, the profuse, the profuse perspiration caused by intense suffering. Verse 14, the action of the heart affected. Verse 14, the strength exhausted and extreme thirst in verse 15. The hands and feet pierced in verse 16. Partial nudity with the hurt of modesty in verse 17. All are associated with the mode of death. The accompanying circumstances are precisely those fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. The desolate cry of verse 1 that's found in Matthew 27:46. The periods of light and darkness in verse 2 are found in Matthew 27, 45. The contemptuous and humiliating treatment of verses 6 through 8 and 12 through 13. The casting of lots in verse 18 were all literally fulfilled. When it is remembered that crucifixion was a Roman, not Jewish form of execution, the proof of inspiration is irresistible. There's absolutely no question that the psalm writer in Psalm 22 is explaining and describing for us what Jesus endured on the cross of Calvary to secure our salvation, to rescue us from our sin. It's our sin that placed Jesus on that cross. It was our rebellion against God that took Jesus to the cross of Calvary where Jesus was praying in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. 
I'm convinced that by the time the psalm writer in Psalm 22 gets to the end of verse 21, we see that breaking of the darkness during that three hours. And that as Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and that that was taken care of, in verse 21 of, chapter 20, of, of Psalm 22, Jesus says this, You answered me. I'm convinced that God's presence breaks through in that moment as Jesus secures our salvation by his death on the cross of Calvary. It's interesting that in verse 20, 31 of this psalm, it ends with this statement. And I'm convinced that that connects to what Jesus says at the very end, just before he gives up his spirit, he says, it is finished. The work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary to bring us salvation. He says, it is finished. At the very end of Psalm 22, it says this, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare that he has done what he has done. The phrase in the Hebrew, what he has done, actually could be translated into our English, it is finished. And as Jesus cries out, it is finished. I'm convinced that he's reflecting on the end of this psalm as he finishes the work of salvation on the cross of Calvary for us. When we think about what Jesus has done for us as we move towards our communion time, as we think about the fact that our sin put Jesus on the cross, my favorite preacher made this statement. And I want to say it. might be a little bit in your face, but I think it's apropos here. He says, he being Jesus took my hell so that I can have his heaven. And I want to ask the question in light of what we've studied this morning from this particular passage. The question is this, did Christ die for you? Sitting in this room, have you come to the realization that it's your sin that placed Jesus on the cross? Are you willing to confess your sin before God today and trust Jesus Christ for your salvation, the one who died in your place to rescue you from your sin? I invite you, as we close in prayer, to just cry out to the Lord from your heart. Tell God that you recognize that you're a sinner. It was your sin that placed Jesus on the cross that you believe that Jesus died to save you from your sin and that you desire for him to be your Savior and Lord. And Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And you can experience that salvation this morning. Christian, does remembering Christ's death realign you? Does it bring you back into focus about what it is that God's calling you to do? and communicating this message to the people around you? Does it realign you in the way that you treat other people? That as you've experienced forgiveness, do you offer forgiveness freely? As you've experienced the long-suffering of God, have you been long-suffering to other people? Have you demonstrated grace because you've received grace? 
I trust that it'll help us be realigned as we reflect on what Christ has done for us. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the fact that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this psalm writer, a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross, describes graphically what the Messiah was going to experience. To die for the sins of his people. God, I think about the prophetic words of the high priest Ananias. When the Jews were actually plotting to kill Jesus, and he confronts the religious leaders and he says, don't you understand that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the nation so that the nation doesn't have to perish? And John tells us that Ananias didn't say that of his own accord. He is actually prophesying about what Jesus was going to do to provide salvation for sins for people. God, may each and every one of us in this room this morning recognize that it was to our advantage that Jesus died for us, that we would place our faith and trust in him. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.